Good morning. It's so good to see you guys. Uh, first time for me to see you guys in person. It's such a treat. Um, it feels like church again. Um, yeah, please be seated. Uh, my name is Lydia Foreman. I'm uh, here on the Northside team. Uh, and if you haven't got a chance to meet, I would love to have a socially distanced coffee or something outside uh, just to get to know you better. I know if you're like me, you're probably craving some kind of human interaction um, with someone outside of your household. So, uh, and the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given us, you know, amazing weather and it's only September. The next 10 days are less than 80 degrees. So we can actually do that without passing out. So thanks be to God. Anyway, um, so we hit a real milestone in our family uh, a few weeks ago. We showed our three boys the movie Napoleon Dynamite for the first time. And this is a movie that was a real big hit when my husband and I were in college. And it really, if, if you, you know what I mean, if you're from my, my generation, it sort of defined a certain, certain sense of humor of our generation. And if you haven't seen it, then you should probably just make plans to correct that at some point because it's really beyond a good description that I could give it. Um, but basically all you need to know is that it's about you know, a very awkward, nerdy teenager. Um, it's kind of an underdog story and it ends with a really great dance number. So that's all you really need to know to get this. But uh, it was really interesting watching it with my boys because it, there were times where they really got the humor uh, and they thought it was hilarious. They had belly laughs or whatever. And other times they were like, why does he, why does he talk like that? And like, why are his eyes closed? Like they really didn't get it. It was like questions I never even asked or questioned when I first watched this movie. But there were some scenes that really hit me differently um, watching the movie so many years later. And I don't know if it's because I've just become a more compassionate person over the years, but I felt really sorry for Napoleon's older brother, Kip, in the movie, if you recall who he is. He's his older brother, he lives at home. He's sort of even scrawnier and nerdier than Napoleon is. And he just doesn't have a whole lot going for him. And then on top of it all, he sort of postures like he does have a lot going for him, which makes him even more of a pathetic character. And so I just felt so bad for him. And uh, if you remember, there's a scene in the movie where he watches a commercial on TV for a local uh, Taekwondo dojo called Rex Kwando because the name of the instructor is Rex. And he, the, the advertisement says something like, if you sign up and commit to the eight weeks um, of this program, you'll learn the strength of a grizzly, the reflexes of a puma, and the wisdom of a man is what this ad uh, advertises. And so Kip and Napoleon want this. And so they sign up and they go. And long story short, it's you know a disaster. The teacher's terrible. He just basically, you know, plays up on the fact that these are very wimpy guys and humiliates them in front of the class and just kind of uses them as a punching bag. And at the end, they leave dejectedly and say, man, that place was a ripoff. Um, and it's a really funny, but also very sad scene. And I think it's because, I think it's because I've been, I've been Kip, right? Like I have been sucked into, and you probably have been sucked into this idea of becoming a, your better self and like, you know, committing to a program, like a quick, you know, eight week program where you're going to become, you know, skinnier, smarter, faster, acquire some skill. And, and you just kind of get sucked into this idea. And whether you've done CrossFit or tried to learn a language or like, 
my husband one summer thought that he would like, get really into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and until he realized he had way too many bloody noses for that to be possible. And so he had to give that up. But we've all, we've all been lured into a program where we've quickly realized like, oh no, like I am in way over my head. Um, you realize like, wait, this thing that I thought I could simply sort of graft onto my daily life and like fit in my afternoons on Tuesdays at three um, and become like really good at, like it's gonna require much more of me than I'm prepared to give it. And I think that this idea, this sort of problematic thinking, unfortunately, carries over into our notion of discipleship oftentimes. I think this false notion that we can simply take Jesus and sort of tack him onto the life that we're already comfortably living, I think is sort of what is at the story, the heart of the story that we, we've read today in Matthew. So in Matthew's version of this story, um, a person whom we later learn through details given to us in the story is rich and he's also a young man. So those are two, the two things we wanna know about him. He comes to Jesus and asks him, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, because of all the connotations that come with that phrase, eternal life, we should probably spend a little time there unpacking that, right? Because, you know, before we get too far down in our interpretation of what that means, because when many of us hear that question, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It sounds exactly the same as what? What do I need to do to get to heaven, right? That's exactly what I thought. But this isn't what that young man is asking Jesus at all, actually. So neither first century Jews or first century Christians conceived of heaven in the way that most of us have come to understand heaven, right? Like the sort of celestial golden palace in the sky where we go when we die, if we've lived good lives and we live sort of like wispy ghost-like um, existences and we learn to play the harp, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's where we, that's kind of what we all think of, we think of heaven. And we all think that probably because of like Dante and Michelangelo, but it's not actually in the Bible. If you're interested in how we've come to believe what we believe about heaven, how we really messed that up royally, you should check out N.T. Wright. He has a lot to say about that. Um, so anyway, but instead, what believers at the time thought about heaven was that this world would be transformed, not someplace in the sky, but this place would be transformed into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew refers to it over and over again. Um, it would be Eden restored where uh, redeemed human beings would be liberated from death, disease, corruption, all that destroys Everything would be rescued and everything would come under the sovereign rule of God. This is what they thought of when they thought of heaven. And so for many Jews, including this man who's talking to Jesus, they believed that the God of Israel would be the one to inaugurate this time. He would start this. So this question that the man is asking is not, where am I gonna go when I die? How do I get to heaven? But he's saying, how do I get in on this? Because he has sensed, along with many others at the time, that this revolution was imminent, that this was about to happen at any moment. And he doesn't wanna be on the wrong side of history. He wants to take part in this. And so Jesus gives him the classic response. He says, keep the commandments. He's like, you know what to do. Like, you're a good Jew. Like, do what you're supposed to do here. And Jesus, of course, knows where this is going. He perceives who this young man is um, and sort of what he's about. He's bright-eyed, he's bushy-tailed, and he's a little bit naive. You can sort of, you kind of sort of read between the lines. 
He's all of us. I think on like January 5th or January 6th, like a few days into our New Year's resolutions, our diets, our habits or whatever, we've got it down, right? Like right after we've purchased our Groupons for CrossFit or SoulCycle. Although I don't think Groupons exist anymore. I just really dated myself, I think, because I don't think we do Groupons, but you know what I mean, right? Like the point is this man feels like he's got it. Like I've handled this. So Which is why when Jesus tells him the specific commandments that are important to obey, even the one where he says, and love your neighbor as yourself, the man doesn't even hesitate, right? He says, I've kept all of them. Got it, done and done. And you may be thinking when you read that or heard that part about loving your neighbor as yourself, like, okay, well, clearly this guy is deluded about his skills. Like, clearly he thinks a little too well about himself. And I, I, was, I was chuckling with a friend the other day. Um, we were talking about our children, how they um, feel very overconfident about their own skills and their abilities. Uh, like, so like after a few months of lessons, they're like, I, I know piano. Or in the case of my own child, you know, an afternoon on Duolingo, And he's like, I know French, Spanish, German, and English, like fluently. Uh, But I I think Matthew actually presents this young man's statement as actually a very sincere uh, declaration because the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself was often interpreted as uh, public charity. So it's to take care of the widows and the orphans in your community. And he probably very willingly and gladly did that, right? And yet he knew there had to be more to it than that. He sensed that something was missing. So in verse 20, he asked Jesus, what do I still lack? And I can't be sure, but I I feel like I know what this man is thinking and why he asks this. He knew the truth deep down, I think. I think he knows that Jesus is going to demand much more of of himself than he was prepared to give, but he feared hearing it. It's like when you ask a question that you already know the answer to, Um, deep down and sometimes you just need someone to look you in the eyes and literally just like pull the truth out of you for you to really admit it finally. And I think Jesus's um, response here is very interesting, but we often miss the beginning of what he says to him. Um, We're often really familiar with what he tells him about the part about selling all your possessions, giving it all to the poor, come follow me, you'll have treasure in heaven. We we're kind of familiar with that part of the response, but we often skip really quickly over what he says at the very beginning. He prefaces it with the conditional, if you wish to be perfect. And again, this is another situation in which I think the phrase could be clarified um, because you could easily misunderstand what Jesus is saying to this man at this moment. It almost sounds like Jesus is saying, okay, if you've mastered, now that you've mastered sort of the basics, here's the ultimate test if you're serious. So it all hinges on what Jesus means by perfect, this word perfect. So in Greek, the word is uh, uh, teleos. It's an adjective form of the word telos, which means like in goal or the main purpose, the ultimate purpose. So teleos doesn't mean sinless or flawlessness or anything like that. That's not what he means by perfect. It means more like purely devoted, all in, uh, brought to completion. That's what he means. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that same word, teleos, is used to describe the heart of David towards the Lord. So, and we all know David was definitely not sinless, but what he's saying is his heart was purely devoted to the Lord. He was all in. So what Jesus is calling this man to, to is not a new commandment at all, but to true discipleship. If he wants to enter the life of the kingdom, he has to be all in. So this is not simply another commandment to tack on. 
nor is it sort of like a, a final boss to defeat. It's a completely new identity that he's calling him into. And as a very wealthy person, this is what terrifies him. And this is why he goes way sad. So wealth in Jesus' day, just as it is today, is a chief marker of identity, right? So power and privilege are still very much inextricably linked with money. And this is why Jesus says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But it's not the wealth itself that Jesus is obsessed with. It's the young man who has the wealth obsession, right? But this guy was a model citizen in many ways. Um, In fact, in, in Mark's version of the same exact story, the text says Jesus looked at him with love. Like he liked him. He was a good guy. Um, I often think that we read this character um, as sort of this bad guy blinded by greed. And so it kind of makes it easy for us to sort of distance ourselves from him and be like, well, he had problems. That's not mine. But he's, he's actually, he's a good guy. He's kept the commandments. He's given to the poor. I think if it were just, if it were just a matter of him pulling out his checkbook, like the guy wouldn't have hesitated. Um, but what Jesus is calling him to is to leave behind this identity that he has created for himself, one of power, of privilege, and status. And this scares him to death because he can't even picture himself without these things. Like, who would he even be? Um, Would he be able to keep his friends? Like, what would his family say? And I think that this is what makes the story so incredibly sad for all of us to read. And because I think that we all have that potential to walk away. Because regardless of where we fall on the wealth spectrum, uh, each and every one of us creates false selves, false identities, um, ones that we create that make us feel at home in the world, that make us feel worthy, uh, that make us feel like that we have some measure of control over our lives and our destiny. Much like this young man had wealth do that for him. It gave him worth, it gave him power, it gave him an identity, made him feel like he was in control. This is what uh, Henry Nouwen calls your relevant self. He says it's the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things. It's, what you, it's like your resume, essentially. Henry Nouwen was a, was a Catholic priest, a theologian and professor who in the last 10 years of his life uh, left behind the world of ministry and academia uh, to live in the Larsh, a Larsh community in Canada which if you're unfamiliar with L'Arche is an organization in a community um, for people with developmental and uh, intellectual disabilities. And so in his book, In the Name of Jesus, he describes his experience of entering this community um, where none of his credentials mattered. So his 20 years at Notre Dame, at Yale and Harvard, like nobody cared, right? And he says of that experience, he says, not being able to use any of the skills that had proved so practical in the past was a real source of anxiety. In a way, it seemed as though I was starting my life all over again. Relationships, connections, reputations could no longer be counted on. This experience was, and in many ways is, still the most important experience of my new life because it forced me to rediscover my true identity. Jesus says of these these relevant selves, these are are false selves, he says, you've got to let it go. He makes it unmistakably clear in Matthew 16, where he says, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves. And whoever loses their self for my sake will find it. He's not asking you to like give up chocolate for Lent or something like that. It's, it's not as simple as that. He calls us 
to nothing less than the total abandonment of our false selves. He calls us, as Nowen says, to be completely irrelevant, to carry the message that God loves us, not because of what we do or accomplish, but because God has created and redeemed us in love and has chosen us to proclaim that love, proclaim that love as the true source of all human life. If you're able, would you please stand as we affirm our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed? <clears throat> 